Open your Bibles with me now to the Gospel of Matthew and to the first chapter. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning working our way as the Lord wills through the Gospel of Matthew, and we make a start now by reading this first chapter in its entirety. Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, as we look at this passage, give us your grace to see the glory of your Son, 
in this passage and in this book upon which we're embarking. Help us today and in these days ahead in this book of Matthew. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Names. When you read this first chapter of Matthew, you cannot help but notice that it is filled with names. Some of them are quite familiar to us, others of them less so. Some of them are honored names, some are infamous. A few of them you'll find in regular use in modern America, and some even in this room this morning, but most of them not so much. But anyway, you slice it, this is a chapter heavy on names. And among all those names, of course, one name stands out most of all, doesn't it? It is the first name mentioned in the chapter, and it is also the name with which the chapter concludes. It is the name toward which this entire genealogy flows in verses 1 through 16, and indeed the name toward which all of Old Testament history flowed from Genesis 3 onward, and toward which all of history is still flowing, even today, as we await his second advent. It is the name, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, which is above every name, and it is the only name, proclaims Peter in Acts 4, by which we must be saved. This chapter is rich with names, but it is rich, most of all, with the name of Jesus. Its subject matter and the subject matter of this entire gospel and the subject matter of the whole Bible actually is Jesus. The scriptures, Jesus said in John 5, testify about me. And of course, this gospel of Matthew is one of four biblical books along with Mark, Luke, and John which testify about Jesus by recording for us far more than any of the other books Jesus' earthly life and times. Matthew begins this chapter with the genealogy of Jesus, and then he tells us about the birth of Jesus in verses 18 through 25, and then he records some episodes from the childhood of Jesus in chapter 2, and then in chapters 3 through 28, he unfolds for us the public ministry of Jesus from his baptism almost all the way to his ascension into heaven. And so this Gospel of Matthew is a book about Jesus. And the first thing Matthew tells us about this Jesus is his genealogy, his family tree, this list of names in verses 1 through 16, which lead us down through history to the name of Jesus. And this genealogy is going to be the first of two main headings that I want us to consider today. Number one, the genealogy of Jesus. Let's just take some time this morning and notice this genealogy. Notice some of the other names, some of the other persons in this chapter, and why they are important to our understanding of the book's main subject matter, namely Jesus. And let's begin with the first name in Matthew's genealogy, there in verse 2, Abraham, the father of Isaac. Abraham. Abraham, you may remember, was the man to whom God had made that marvelous promise, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And here we have Abraham's family tree. Here we have the list of names of these descendants, of these various seeds 
who came from Abraham's loins, and the list culminates in Jesus. It culminates in Jesus. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He's the great descendant of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He is the fulfillment of God's great covenant with Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And then in the genealogy of Jesus, we should also notice the great name, verse 6, of David the king. David the king. God made a wonderful covenant with David too, did he not? I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this great and anticipated king, this promised son of David, came to be called by the people of God the Messiah, the anointed one. And not only does Matthew call Jesus the Messiah multiple times in this passage, but he traces Jesus' family tree from David down through the list of these other kings and then men who were not kings and eventually brings us down to Jesus, showing us that Jesus is indeed a son of David just as the Messiah was to be. And Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised king. Jesus is the seed of Abraham and he is the son of David. He is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the specific ways in which Matthew highlights these two names, Abraham and David, in Jesus' family tree are two of several reasons why Bible scholars have noted that it is generally believed that Matthew wrote this gospel primarily for a Jewish audience. Maybe for Jewish Christians, as some commentators say, maybe unbelieving Jews, maybe both, says William Hendrickson. But in any event, the specific ways in which Matthew highlights Abraham and David in Jesus' family tree are two reasons why scholars generally think Matthew is writing mostly for a Jewish audience. So what are the specific ways of highlighting Abraham and David in this genealogy that the scholars have noticed? Well, concerning Abraham, the scholars have noted that while Luke, in his gospel, traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam... Matthew, on the other hand, begins only with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And by beginning with Abraham, the father of the Jews, by beginning this genealogy with Abraham rather than with Adam, they, the scholars point out that Matthew is making a particular appeal to Jewish readers, showing them that Jesus is the son of Abraham, verse 1. And concerning David, at least a couple of the commentators I consulted, John MacArthur and R.T. France, also point out that Matthew's repeated use of the messianic title, Son of David, is important. Jesus is called the Son of David here in verse 1, and he's called Son of David in several other places throughout Matthew's gospel. Indeed, Matthew refers to this title, Son of David, more than any of the other gospel writers, more than all of them combined, actually, 
And the idea, France and MacArthur point out, is that Matthew is emphasizing this messianic title because he's writing primarily for a Jewish audience. So these two characters of characteristics of Matthew's gospel, the emphasis on his descent from Abraham and from David, combined with other traits of Matthew's writing as well, bring Bible scholars to the general con- consensus that Matthew is probably writing for a primarily Jewish audience. Another of those characteristics not- noted by the commentators is the way at which the way in which at several points throughout this narrative Matthew's eager to show how Jesus fulfills what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. We have an example of that eagerness in our chapter today in verses 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So with quotations like this, Matthew seems to have Jewish readers in mind whom he wants to show that this Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he is the prophesied Messiah of their own scriptures. And in this family tree this morning, he wants these Jewish readers to see that this Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, verse 1, is genealogically fit to be that Messiah. That he is genealogically fit to fulfill those promises. All this, the observation of Bible scholars who've studied this book carefully so that people like me can preach it more faithfully to you. So this is a gospel originally written primarily for a Jewish audience and R.T. France points out how Matthew's gospel would have been useful for Jewish Christians in presenting and defending the gospel among non-Christian Jews. And I just borrow from him this morning and point out before we move on that if you have non-Christian Jewish friends, neighbors, co-workers, this gospel of Matthew, written as it was originally for a primarily Jewish audience, might be a good place for you to begin in explaining to your Jewish friends the good news of Jesus. Show them this genealogy and show them the various prophecies that Matthew quotes in this gospel as having been fulfilled by Jesus. So it be a very helpful book to share with your Jewish friends. But then the great commentator William Hendrickson points out three more names in this genealogy which show us, he says, that this gospel is not only for the Jews. Namely, he points out the names Tamar in verse 3 and Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, none of whom were Israelites. And Hendrickson, noticing these foreigners in this list, and also noticing other Gentile-friendly tidbits later in Matthew's gospel, culminating in the Great Commission at the end of the book, Hendrickson, calling attention to these things, points out that, quote, Matthew makes it very clear that this Messiah of prophecy stands related to the entire world. To the entire world. So Hendrickson's one of those who says, yes, there is a Jewish emphasis in this gospel, but then he says, this gospel, if you look at it, shows that Jesus is concerned for the entire world. Indeed, we remember from God's covenant with Abraham, the father of the Jews, that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
And so Jesus is not only the Messiah of the Jews, but praise God, he's the Messiah of people from every nation. In your seed, in the great descendant who will come from your loins, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we who believe today are the fruit of that promise. And we are the people of this Messiah, this seed of Abraham, this descendant of David, this Messiah for all nations. I hope you believe today. I hope that you are among Messiah's people. So we're considering Jesus' genealogy. We've noted the names, the prominent names, the important names of Abraham and David. And William Hendrickson has called our attention to the names of these Gentiles, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And then we need to be sure that we don't overlook the honored name of Joseph. Down in verse 16, the husband of Mary and thus the adoptive father of Jesus. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. If the names of Abraham and David remind us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, and if the names of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth show us that Jesus is the Messiah, not for Jews only, but for the Gentiles as well. What Joseph shows us is that God placed his beloved son into a very godly home. Joseph was a righteous man, verse 19. And he demonstrated that righteousness. He demonstrated the uprightness of his character, first of all, in the kind and gracious way in which he treated his fiancée Mary when he found out that she was pregnant. Verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now Joseph is called Mary's husband in verse 19, based on the fact that betrothal in ancient Israel was a binding contract that had to be gotten out of officially. But it's clear from verse 18 that the marriage had not yet been consummated, that Mary and Joseph had not yet come together. And yet, though the marriage had not been consummated, Mary turned up pregnant. And evidently, Joseph thought that what you would think and what I would think, that she'd stepped out on him, that she had been with another man. He didn't know yet where this child had come from. And understandably, thinking that she had cheated on him, Joseph changed his mind about going through with the planned consummation of this marriage. But notice that he didn't shame Mary. He didn't make a big deal about it. Joseph could have taken Mary to court, says the commentator William Hendrickson. But, says Hendrickson, this would have brought the thing out into the public. And Joseph didn't do that. And he didn't go on Facebook, as it were, either. He didn't go down in his time to the town well there in Nazareth, to air his grievances to his friend, friends about how this woman had done him wrong. no. Joseph, her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And I wonder how we react when we are done wrong, like Joseph initially thought that he had been. Joseph, in whose home Jesus would be raised, was a good man, a godly man, a gracious man. And we see the fact of his godliness, not only in his gracious treatment of Mary when he thought she cheated on him, but also in his obedience toward his God once he'd gotten the angel's instructions in verses 20 and 21. 
Joseph, verse 24, awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Could that sort of sentence be written about you this week, this month, in your life in general? Could it be written about me that we did what God gave us to do? The angel told Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife in verse 20. And in verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and took Mary as his wife. The angel told him in verse 21 to name the child Jesus. And Joseph in verse 25 called his name Jesus. Just what God commanded through his angel, that's what Joseph did. And this is the adoptive father under whose roof God was going to place his son, under whose care God was going to show Jesus his care. And just noticing what sort of earthly father that God gave to his only begotten son and what sort of mother too in the Gospel of Luke, noticing these two godly parents into whose whose home God chose to place his son is suggestive, I think, of what sort of homes what sort of parents our children should have. Oh, that we dads would be as righteous, as gracious, as kind, as obedient to God as was this man Joseph. And oh, that you mothers would be as willing to acquiesce to the Lord's bidding as was young Mary. And speaking of Mary, we need to notice her too in Jesus' family tree, not just in terms of her godliness, but in another way as well. So still on this first heading of Jesus' genealogy, let's consider in the last place here, Mary, by whom Jesus was born, verse 16. And what we're reminded when we look at Mary is that this Jesus, the son of David, the seed of Abraham, the Messiah of Israel and of the world, this Jesus, born of a human mother, really is a human himself. That this Jesus is a man, truly man, fully man. Now it's true, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he is not merely man, not merely a human being. And we'll come back to that before we finish. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And this one who was conceived conceived in the womb of Mary is fully human. Jesus has no human father, but he does have a human mother. And he is a human being, body and soul, in every way that you and I are, except that he has not fallen into sin. The theologian Donald MacLeod, in his excellent book, The Person of Christ, presents the case for Jesus' full humanity, both the humanity of his body and of his soul, And concerning the full humanity of Jesus' body, after he lays out the biblical evidence, McLeod points out how the Athanasian Creed and the Westminster Confession of Faith and other historic creeds speak of Jesus being of the substance of his mother Mary. Of her substance. And that phraseology and that word substance are important, is an important word, it's important language to which both McLeod, when I quote him in a minute, and I, following him, are going to return. And McLeod helps us understand what it means that Jesus was conceived of Mary's substance and helps us, therefore, to grasp the full humanity of Jesus' body when he writes as follows. The Athanasian Creed specifically links 
his, Jesus' manhood to the substance of his mother, and the later Protestant creeds do the same. The Westminster Confession, for example, speaks of him as conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. This underlines, McLeod says, the fact that in all essential respects, Christ's human body was identical with our own. It had the same anatomy, the same physiology, the same biochemistry, the same central nervous system, and the same basic genetic code. But the derivation from the substance of the virgin also means that she, as mother, contributed to him all that any human mother contributes to her child, sin accepted. Through the umbilical cord, he is the particular man, the son of this particular woman, the bearer of the whole previous genetic history of her people, and the recipient of innumerable hereditary features. End of quote. All that to show that Jesus' body really did come from Mary. His human flesh really is of her substance, just like you are of your mother's substance, just like God made you using your mother's very own body to do so. And it's a striking phrase that McLeod uses when he speaks of Jesus receiving from Mary through the umbilical cord. And it's a helpful phrase because it helps us grasp that God didn't place a prefabricated baby in Mary's womb, but that he formed a baby there in the same way that he forms every other baby, through the umbilical cord, through the substance of Mary's own body. And that helps us wrap our minds around the full humanity of Jesus' body. He is a man, like we are. And then when we speak of the full humanity of Jesus, we're speaking not only of a fully human body, but also of a fully human soul. McLeod is speaking of Jesus' body in the quote that I gave, but he goes on to point out that Jesus has a fully human soul as well. The soul is an aspect of our humanity that's very real, but very hard to put our fingers on as we try to explain it, and even more so if we try to think about where our souls come from. Does God create each individual soul from nothing? Or does he somehow bring our souls into being like he brings our bodies into being through the agency of our parents? I don't know the answer. And theologians have differing views. And so while Jesus got the humanity of his body from Mary, I'm not positive if God gave him his human soul through her. But either way, it's clear Christ had a human soul because Hebrews 2.17 tells us he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. The only way in which Jesus is not like us is that he's not a sinner, that he has no sin nature and that he never actually sinned either. But Donald McLeod, again, points out that you don't have to have a sin nature to be fully human. Witness Adam in the garden and Eve in the garden, he says. And he says, witness what we will be in our glorification if we belong to Christ. You don't have to have a sin nature to be fully human. And so while Jesus is not a fallen human, he is fully human. And we're drawing this point again from noticing the name of Mary in Jesus' family tree, from our notice that Jesus has a human mother through whom God gave Jesus, at the very least, his fully human body. And whether or not God brought about Jesus' human soul, into whether he brought that soul into being through Mary or not, I'm not sure, but it's clear that he had such a soul. Jesus is fully human in every respect. Not fallen human, but fully human. 
So then we've been noticing the genealogy of Jesus here, noticing that he is the seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that he is the son of David, whose throne God will establish forever, that he is the descendant of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, the Gentiles, reminding us that he's the Messiah, not only of the Jews, but of the nations. He's the son of Joseph, and thus he was the child of a godly home, and he is the son of Mary reminding us that he is one of us, that he is fully human. And then our second heading this morning is not only to notice the genealogy of Jesus and some of the key names therein, but also to give attention now to the names of Jesus. The names of Jesus. So we're still noticing names, but now we're going to notice the names that are given to God's Son in this passage. Three times in this chapter... Matthew points out what this son of Abraham and David and Joseph and Mary is to be called. Jesus, verse 16, who is called the Messiah. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 23, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel. Three times we're told what Jesus is called. Three names of Jesus, or more precisely, two names, and then a designation that's really a title, more than a name, although I've included it under this heading. The names of Jesus. So let's look at each of them now, beginning in verse 16 with the Messiah. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah or in some translations, who is called Christ. Messiah and Christ both mean the same thing, namely God's anointed one. Messiah coming from the Hebrew, Christ from the Greek. And this is the first of the three designations by which Jesus is called here in Matthew 1. And this is the designation that is really a title rather than a name. Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, we've thought about Jesus as Messiah a good bit already. Noting that Matthew calls him this, of course, multiple times, and also noting noting that Jesus is, in fact, the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, and that he is the son of David whose kingdom will have no end. This Jesus is the one for whom the Jewish people were waiting, and whom the whole Old Testament, from Genesis 3 onward, is anticipating. Jesus is the long-awaited King of the Jews. He is the Son of David. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. He is the greater Emmanuel in Isaiah 7. He is the child, Isaiah 9, who would be born to us. The Son who would be given, on whose shoulders would rest the government, and whose name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the ruler in Micah chapter 5 to be born in Bethlehem, but whose goings forth are from the days of eternity. And though many may not have expected Messiah to come in this way, Jesus is also the suffering servant about whom we read earlier in the service in Isaiah 52 and 53. All of this is packed into the term that Matthew uses repeatedly in this chapter. Jesus, the Messiah, verse 1. Jesus, who is called the Messiah, verse 16. The Messiah, verse 17. Jesus Christ, 
verse 18. And as the Jews awaited him so long ago, we should be awaiting the Christ. We should be awaiting the Messiah. We should be awaiting God's anointed one still, singing with Charles Wesley, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come, our Messiah, and deliver your people. Saying with the book of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. I hope that is your song and your hope. Jesus God's Messiah. And then under this heading of the names of Jesus, not only is Jesus called the Messiah in this chapter, but he is also called in verse 21, very simply, Jesus. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now our English word Jesus comes from the Greek word Jesus, which is the Greek way of saying Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua. And Yeshua, Jesus' Hebrew name, has a meaning. Namely, Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord saves. And that is why, in verse 21, he was to be given that name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What a marvelous name. And what a marvelous Savior who bears it, who saves his people from their sins. Jesus became incarnate. He became human in order that he might fulfill the meaning of that name. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became incarnate so that he might fulfill the meaning of his name. He went to the cross in order that he might fulfill the meaning of his name. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He rose from the dead in order that he might fulfill the meaning of his name. Romans 6, 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And he is coming again in order that he might fulfill the meaning of his name. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. He became a man to fulfill the meaning of his name. He went to the cross to fulfill the meaning of his name. He rose from the dead to fulfill the meaning of his name. He's coming again to fulfill the meaning of this name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What a glorious name. What a wonderful Savior. Is he yours? Have you embraced him as your Savior? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for yourself? What a tragedy if you should have learned today or known before you ever came in this morning the very meaning of Jesus' name, the Lord saves, but if you never embrace him by the meaning of that name. If you never entrust yourself to him as your Savior. Trust him. Run to him, my friends, today. He will save his people from their sins, and he will save you if you come to him. So the names of Jesus, 
Jesus, verse 16, who is called the Messiah. Jesus, the long-expected one. Jesus, verse 21, who will save his people from their sins. And then in the final place now, still under this heading of the names of Jesus, in the final place we should notice in verse 23 a third designation for Jesus, namely Emmanuel. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now the words with us, God with us, certainly remind us of one of the great truths about Jesus that we've already considered. God with us reminds us of Jesus' incarnation, of his becoming human, of his becoming one of us. God with us. God is one of us. And so praise God that Jesus came to be with us. Praise God that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Praise God that Jesus is God with us. God one of us. The truth of Jesus' full humanity is crucial to our comfort and vital, as we saw in Hebrews 2, to our salvation. But while these words, God with us, remind us of Jesus' humanity, they also inform us very plainly, very magnificently of Jesus' divinity, of his deity, of the fact, in other words, that he is God. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We said earlier that the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit means that he is not merely human. He is human, born of Mary, but he's not merely human. Before they came together, verse 18, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So something unusual took place here. God brings about all conceptions, but God brought about this conception not in the normal way in which he forms a baby in the womb by bringing together two human parents. God brought this conception to be in a unique way so that there was no human father and so that Mary, a virgin, verse 25, is found, verse 18, to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And these circumstances demonstrate that while the child is human, conceived in the womb of Mary, yet because he is conceived by the Spirit, he is not merely human. And such a conception begs the question of what kind of child this actually is. Who is this child born of a woman, conceived in the womb of a woman, and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit of God? What kind of child is this? And the answer, of course, in verse 23, is that he is the God-man. He is the God-man. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. Now, of course, it's not that Jesus is God because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's not that being conceived by the Spirit in his humanity, somehow made Jesus God. Jesus has always been God from eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yet, while it is not that Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit made him God, yet his conception by the Spirit does show us that something unusual is happening here, that he's not merely man. 
And thus the conception by the Spirit announced in verse 18 and 20 to us readies us for the even more astonishing announcement in verse 23 that this child is in fact the God-man. That he is God with us. Somehow, in ways that we cannot fathom and that Scripture does not fully explain, somehow God himself, God the Son, God the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God from eternity past, somehow this God himself, through the conception of the Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, became a man. He was always God, and now God becomes man, the God-man. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. That's why Jesus could calm the seas. That's why he could heal the lepers. That's why he could feed the 5,000. That's why he could save his people from their sins, because he is God. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us, God with us, and God with us. It's a wonderful name, isn't it? It's a wonderful Savior and a wonderful pair of truths that this name entails about him. That the Jesus we worship is at one and the same time and in one and the same person, God with us and God with us. Praise God that Jesus came to be with us so that he understands us and he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he has been tempted in all things as we are and he knows all about our troubles, wrote Johnson Oatman. And so that as one of us, he was able to die for us. God with us. And yet praise God too that Jesus is God with us. So that he not only understands us as one of us, but so that as God, he can help us. He can save us. He can meet our every need. And let us remember too that as God with us, he is to receive our adoration, our worship, our praise. It was God in Mary's womb here in Matthew chapter 1. It was God who was laid in the manger in Bethlehem. And he is God with us still, both to help us and to receive our praise as we are gathered together in his name today. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Benjamin Russell Hanby wrote, and we're going to sing, Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he on yonder tree dies in grief and agony? Who is he that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? Tis the Lord. Oh, wonder story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. God with us.